Okay, Jesse, last week's story was definitely infuriating. What do you have for me this time? A steamy affair leads to the double homicide of innocent victims who were collateral damage of love gone terribly wrong. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about torridress, Randy Bliss, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled to welcome and shout out a new set of incredible patrons this week. Ricky B and Stacy L. Rebecca M and Vencian D. Carlin B and Maria J. Catherine F and Meg E. And Virgette H and Randy H. And last but most certainly not least, DW. Woo! Welcome. Thank you so much for being patrons. And Andy, I know that you feel very passionately about the organization that we are donating to this week. So I thought I would let you have the chance to tell our audience about them. October marks National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is paying increased attention to addressing domestic violence, also known as intimate partner violence and specifically focusing on supporting its victims. I think typically there is a lot of attention on heterosexual partnerships, but very often there's a lot of domestic violence in the LGBTQ community and relationships that need our support too. Domestic violence actually occurs in LGBTQ relationships at a similar or higher rate than the general population. Studies also show that gay men and bisexual women are more likely to experience severe and physical violence more than their straight counterparts, and that the psychological violence can be an equally devastating form of abuse. In particular, threats to out another person's sexual orientation or gender identity as a means of control. Finally, we want to make sure that we contribute and help our LGBTQ youth who may be struggling with emotional and psychological abuse in their homes. This week, as allies, we are donating to the Anti-Violence Project, who helps LGBTQ communities in situations of all forms of domestic abuse and GLAD in honor of Spirit Day, Thursday, October 20th, which aims to create awareness specific to the bullying and harassment of the LGBTQ community. Awesome. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. And I'm looking forward to continuing to work with them. And next summer, I think we should also do something probably for Pride as well. Totally. I think that's really important. I've had a few requests for us to do LGBTQIA plus stories for June month. Which we will definitely do. I actually now have a section of my bookshelf that is specifically for those cases. And I have all these stickers that are color coding everything right now, like whether they have an audible or not, 
whether it's LGBTQ plus cases. I've got stickers for everything. I've got potential Father's Day, potential Mother's Day. Spoiler alert, it's usually terrible fathers and mothers killing their children. I figured. <laughs> so I figured. Not, ex- not exactly the uplifting stories you want for a wonderful holiday, but you have your own mothers and fathers for that, so... We'll keep bringing you murder. That being said, let's jump right into a chilly fall story right now. What do you say? Let's do it. It's 57 degrees outside in LA, so I'm ready. So it's basically frigid is what you're saying? (laughs) Yes. And my (laughs) butt warmer on. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. Harry Strunk Lake in Cambridge, Nebraska is a mecca for local fishermen. On October 3rd, 1973, fall was on full display, evident in the changing of the leaves and the brisk nip of chill in the air. A farmer named Dean McQuidey was walking along the dam looking for carp when he spotted something in the water. As he drew closer, he realized in horror that it was a human foot bobbing gently against the rocks. Oh my God. Quickly, he spun around and scanned the area to see if the perpetrator could still be around. But there was nothing and no one. He was entirely alone, as was the foot that was not connected to a body. Oh, my God. (laughs) Chilled now in a way that had nothing to do with the fall air, he gingerly lifted the foot out of the water and placed it on the shore so it wouldn't float away. Which props to him for doing so that he was preserving evidence and making sure it didn't leave. But that's also really grody. Did he have latex gloves in his pocket by chance? I don't know. Farmers are pretty tough, though. (laughs) He probably just grabbed it with his hands. (laughs) (laughs) He then rushed to the lake supervisor's office and shared news about the grizzly discovery. The sheriff's office was called. And while the men waited, they saw another body part floating close to the shore. No. This time, it was the right arm of a female with the hand still attached, and on the hand's third finger was a ring studded with multicolored gemstones. A search team was formed by the sheriff and his deputies, including a mortician, members of the Nebraska State Patrol's criminal investigation team, and one private investigator who had been tasked with tracking down the whereabouts of a missing senior citizen couple. Soon, other body parts were discovered. The macabre inventory grew hour after hour with breasts, arms, a pelvic bone, femurs, and even a large piece of skin that appeared to show a bullet hole edged in black powder burns. Oh, Oh, it's really early still here. I think it's really early for dismemberment at any time of the day. Yes, so this is absolutely sickening. You are correct, Andy. Over the next two days, more body parts floated to the surface, making headline news in the small surrounding Nebraska towns. The residents of McCook began to panic. There were rumors of satanic cults and criminal activity perpetuated by football players at a nearby junior college. Doors that had always been unlocked were now bolted tight and there was a run on handguns. When the bodies were identified through the woman's unique jewelry and confirmed to be the pair of missing grandparents named Edwin and Wilma Hoyt, shockwaves went through the county. Edwin and Wilma were salt-of-the-earth farmers who had raised five children who were now grown and raising their own. They were well-respected and liked in the small town. Certainly not the types of people to get caught up in criminal activity, which made the murder seem random and therefore even more terrifying. 
Through the work of a joint investigation between the state and local police, as well as one bulldog of a PI, the truth would eventually come to light. And it was ugly. This is a story of infidelity, tawdry sex, carnal pleasures, stalking, harassment, obsession, and ultimately, two good-hearted people who got terribly ensnared in a horrible double homicide to no fault of their own. Wow. Edwin and Wilma Hoyt had been missing for roughly a week and a half when the body parts began rising to the surface of Harry's Trunk Lake on October 5th, 1973. They had last been seen hosting a family dinner on September 23rd, a regular occasion for the loving parents and doting grandparents. When they disappeared without their car and wallets the next day, their family and friends were mystified. Then, when they were positively identified as the bodies in the lake, the community was gutted. So I first heard about this case, which takes a wild turn. This is really, really a roller coaster ride because it was the very first case covered by Crimes of Passion, the ParCast podcast. This was the first case they covered. And while I haven't listened to all of that show, I remember I got into it because I was looking for cases like ones that we cover on Love Murder back in the day. And the delivery is different. It's a different type of show than ours, but they cover all of the same types of cases, which really fascinated me because obviously this is the type of true crime story that I'm interested in. So that's where I first heard about this case. And then Small Town Murder did an episode about it as well. I admittedly have not listened to either of those episodes in probably a couple of years. So they were not directly related to my research. It's just where I found them. And then my primary source today is a book called In Cold Storage, Sex and Murder on the Plains by James Hewitt. Edwin had been born on a farm in McCook, Nebraska in 1918 and had been a promising football player and popular student. He attended college for a year in Colorado before returning home to help his father on the family farm. He met Wilma Mae Joy while they were both teenagers and the couple wed in June of 1938 when they were both 20 years old. That's such a nice name, Wilma Mae Joy. It really is. Both of their names when you said them and obviously the fact that it was an elderly couple where I was like, oh. I know. It breaks your heart, especially because that multicolored stone ring that she was wearing, I believe, was a grandmother's ring where you get a different gemstone based on each grandchild's birth month. I remember my grandmother wanted one so desperately, and it was such a big deal when my parents and my uncle and aunt got her one that had our stones on it. Cute. Yeah. So yeah, it's totally heartbreaking. They're just really the best people. They met, they got married when they were 20 years old. Wilma worked for the telephone company and eventually became a salesperson at a department store while Edwin farmed and also made a living as a plumber. The couple was very social. They routinely played pinochle with a group of friends every weekend and enjoyed going out for fishing trips as well. They just remind me a lot of my grandparents who were born around a similar time. My grandparents were both born in 1922 and they did the same thing. They loved fishing. They had a group of friends they played cards with every weekend. And the couple also had five children and they would basically just take the kids over and like pile them into a room with like the other couple's kids and let them sleep while they played cards all night. So cute. It was super cute. And it was just a fun community thing. And that's really the types of people they were. This was like a different era where you didn't live to work, you work to live. So the things that they did like for the telephone company and plumbing and farming, that was just so that they could be around their families and enjoy themselves and go out fishing on the weekends and live their life. 
So they welcomed five children during their marriage, Roger, Donna, Kay, Stanley, and Herbert. So they had two girls in the middle and three boys. At the time of the murders, only Kay still lived in McCook, though Donna lived in nearby Indianola. Roger and his wife lived in Wisconsin, and their younger two sons were in the military. One was based in Germany, and the other one was based in South Carolina. While the siblings got along for the most part, there was a consensus that Kay was the problem child. She was described by her older sister Donna as being extremely manipulative and had learned how to work her parents at an early age. She was constantly getting out of chores by creating non-existent allergies and ailments. For example, saying that she could not do the dishes or dry the dishes because it made her sneeze uncontrollably. Oh, I love getting out of chore excuses. They're so funny. (laughs) Yes. It's like everyone can do a chore. Everyone can do it. So she had excuses about that or she'd say that something was irritating her skin Or she was ill when she had to do this thing, so she had to get out of it. And Donna also said that she always had to be the center of attention. And any time that something big and exciting happened in Donna's life, Kay would collapse, therefore making the day about herself and not her sister. For example, when Donna and her husband told Kay that they were engaged, Kay fainted, and it was only at Kay's hospital bedside that Wilma and Edwin learned that their eldest daughter was engaged and about to be married. Wow. Yeah. So Donna, there was a (laughs) bit of a sibling-sister rivalry here, and it was kind of one-sided because Kay just ended up always getting the spotlight, getting the attention, getting the care from the parents. So it seemed like whenever anything was too difficult or someone else was taking the spotlight, Kay would mysteriously have a breakdown of some form or another. Records of doctors who treated Kay during her adolescence and early adulthood don't come out and say explicitly that she was malingering, which is the legal definition of lying. But the implication was that she was, according to author James Hewitt. One thing was for sure was that Kay was the apple of her parents' eye and she could do no wrong. This was maddening, especially to the older siblings, Roger and Donna, who could see Kay for what she really was, in their opinion, an attention-hogging prevaricator. Burn. That was all from me, too. That wasn't James Hewitt's words. I'm leaning in. I figured. Yeah, leaning in. I figured that was a Jesse (laughs) proclamation. This is something my dad said to me when I was little. Like, I would tell him something. He'd be like, are you prevaricating? I'm like, no. Are you being facetious? It's like, no. We'd have to get out the encyclopedia and look it up instead of Googling. Yeah, exactly. That's why I have all these like big words, guys. It's because my dad just hammered me with them early on. Despite her siblings' suspicions about her character, Kay was seemingly well-liked in high school. She participated in band, drama, and various social clubs. Kay began dating the star running back of the undefeated 1960 McCook Bison football team, a guy named Dwayne Hine, and the couple was crowned the king and queen of hearts at the senior Valentine's Day dance. Oh my goodness. By popular vote, it said. (laughs) (laughs) Dwayne was described by his classmates as one of the most nice and decent guys that you could ever meet. The young couple was married directly after high school graduation in 1961 and welcomed two darling daughters. By all accounts, Duane was a wonderful father and an all-around caring individual. He worked as a laborer on a road maintenance crew and enjoyed activities like hunting and fishing in his spare time. Soon, Kay became disenchanted with her high school sweetheart, who was no longer the football hero legend that she had met in high school and married. 
She told a friend that they had married simply because they wanted to have sex, which I think we've talked about in this era. Many young people did, and that's why they married so early. But that that passion had long since died. Kay complained that Dwayne did little to sexually please her, and he cared more about his outdoor hobbies than paying her attention. The couple did socialize often, however, becoming chummy with Dwayne's co-worker, a man 15 years their senior named Harold Noakes, who was the foreman at the Nebraska Department of Roads Crew. Harold was a handsome, strapping man of 6'2", while his devoted wife of over two decades, Ina, only stood barely five feet tall. The couples hit it off and often went on hunting and fishing trips, both passions of the Noakeses as well as Dwayne's. Kay could take or leave the camping trips, but she enjoyed going out dancing, which the couples also frequently did together. It was at a dance club while celebrating New Year's Eve 1970 with their spouses that Kay and Harold first locked lips. I knew it. It had been an innocent New Year's kiss, but it kindled a fire between the two adulterers. A fire that would eventually burn both of their families to the ground. Not long after the New Year's kiss, Kay invented a reason to call Harold and asked him to pick her up in his car to ostensibly take her somewhere she needed to go. What followed was him picking her up, but them parking somewhere and them having animalistic, desperate sex in the backseat like a couple (laughs) of high schoolers. From then on, it was on like Donkey Kong. The lovers snuck away two to three times a week to satisfy their purient urges. This went on for nearly two years before their spouses began to catch wind of the affair. Dwayne had heard from coworkers that there were rumors about Harold and his wife, but he dismissed them as just that, rumors. So he was blindsided when Kay served him with divorce papers in 1971. Kay had fallen in love with Harold and wanted to be with him for real. Though we don't know exactly what Harold promised Kay, it was enough for Kay to blow up her marriage, family, and even her extended family's lives. Yeah, and what year is this? 1971. And at this point, 1971 in Nebraska, they still didn't have no-fault divorces. That happened actually the next year, following year in 1972. So essentially, if you want a divorce, you had to still prove that there was some sort of infidelity or abuse or unusual cruelty. Yeah. And you literally had to go to court and prove that that was occurring in order to be granted a divorce. Yeah. So how she ended up roping her family into this is that since she was already the cheater in the relationship and there was absolutely no proof that Duane was unfaithful, even remotely, she decided to make him look like an abuser. So Kay lied to her parents about the physical and sexual abuse she suffered at Dwayne's hands, and she also said that he was additionally verbally abusive to their daughters. Wilma and Edwin, of course, believed their daughter, were horrified. She had been seeding this over months, telling them little stories here and there. So they actually testified on her behalf in divorce court, saying that he was abusive. Wait, this is so bad. It's so bad. So she lied to her parents, pulled them into this, and now they're unknowingly perjuring themselves. And it's planting a seed in the kids' eyes, too, that their dad is abusive. Not a good dude. Exactly. As a result of this, she did earn full custody. So now the dad has no custody whatsoever. And she got the divorce that she had so craved. The sad thing about this is that the Hoyts all really liked Dwayne. So this 
revelation that he was abusive had been really shocking to them and seemed out of character. But naturally, they believed the victim or the so-called victim, which was also their sister and daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shortly after the divorce, Kay began to pressure Harold to leave his wife of 26 years and be with her. Ina and Harold were high school sweethearts who had wed while they were still in school. 16-year-old Ina was already one month pregnant, and 18-year-old Harold was just about to graduate from high school at the time of their wedding. Classmates said that they made an attractive yet odd couple visually due to their 14-inch height difference. Harold had been an athletic and popular guy and was considered quite the catch. Ina was remembered as having chased him, and once she caught him, was oopsies pregnant. <laughs> Some people did not think that it had been a mistake. By all accounts, Ina had been a devoted mother to their two children, but an even more faithful wife to her beloved husband. She happily adopted his favorite pastimes, like fishing, camping, and hunting, and apparently she was an incredible Marks woman in her own right, with a friend saying that she could, quote, shoot the eye out of a hawk. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's some specificity. It seemed that Ina had done everything in her power to preserve the long-term marriage. So she was shaken in the spring of 1972 when Harold, allegedly out of guilt, confessed to the two-plus-year affair with Kay, who was the 15 years younger wife of their couple friends. Yeah. And I really do not know what Ina's initial reaction was, whether she had kind of known and looked the other way, whether she had been in complete denial, whether she truly had no idea. So I don't actually know how she first responded. Yeah. Grab the shotgun. Yeah. So Harold had felt guilty enough to spill his guts to his wife. But he was not inclined to end things with Kay, which usually okay. when you yeah. are confessing, you say, I'm sorry, I've been doing this thing. I'm going to stop. I want to rebuild our marriage. And he said no such thing to her. Instead, he proposed a solution for their predicament, which is why don't they both start sleeping with Kay? Why don't we just three-way this up? Okay. <laughs> I mean, she's been, like, so loyal to him so far. I feel like he's probably just, like, hoping that she'll go along with Pushing it. Pushing the envelope. He's like, let's welcome her into our marital bed, and then it's not an affair because you're part of it. And she said, okay. <laughs> Stop. She said, all right, let's do it. <laughs> Dude, Ina's a badass. Like... She's just, okay. So she agreed to have three-way sex with Harold and Kay and to see where it went. Now, if you're a gentleman out there, or a lady, or non-binary, whatever you are, it's 2022, it doesn't matter. I just do not recommend this transition into non-monogamy. <laughs> no. Like, this is not the responsible way that adults should handle this. And Harold must have been a goddamn wizard to turn, I've been cheating on you for two years, into a three-way. I'm, like, flabbergasted right now. <laughs> it's shocking. That is not the yes. way these things get done. No, and like back then either, I feel like. Yes, this was very taboo, extremely taboo to be considering this in the early 70s. Well, I guess there was like some free love motions going on, but this is, we're talking Nebraska. I know, that's what I was just going to say. It takes a minute for things to get inland. <laughs> so this is Nebraska, and these are not young people. And they have kids. They all have kids. So 
the Noakeses at this point are in their mid 40s and their children are grown. So their two children are out of the house at this point because they started having kids very early, 17 and 18, just about. So their kids are grown. And then Kay had two young children. And I think she's 30 at this point. But these are not young, like swinging, sexy 20 somethings in San Francisco in the 70s. This is a pair of longtime married farming folk in Nebraska. In Nebraska. <laughs> in reality, about Ina's willingness to go along with this, Harold later said that it was less that she wanted to have a fun sexual experience and more because she was afraid of losing her husband, which is such a bummer. Based on how Kay later described the thruples sexual activity over the next year, it sounded like Ina went in maybe exclusively to save her marriage, but came out of it a new sexually satisfied woman. So it went down like this. In the summer of 1972, Harold called Kay and invited her to accompany he and Ina on a fishing trip to a lake about 110 miles away from McCook. The only problem was that the cabin only had one bed. Wink, wink. <laughs> I think we're picking up what you're putting down, babe. Kay also immediately got the subtext and accepted the invitation. And with that already in the books, Harold pushed his luck a little bit more and said, well, if you're okay with this type of trip, maybe you should come over a little bit sooner and we can all just get to know each other before maybe a little sexual prelude to the fishing trip. Wow, Harold has some brass balls. He really does. So Kay agreed. She later said that she would have done just about everything to win Harold over. So it was almost as though these two women both want this man and they're playing sexual chicken. I think that they both went into it saying, I'm going to say yes, because she's going to say no. That Kay was like, yeah, for sure. Like, if that means I get to be with you more often, I'll sleep with your wife, too, because there's no way Eno's going to go for that. And she'll leave him and then he'll be with me. And I think Ina was thinking there's no way that Kay's going to go with me maintaining my position as the wife and the primary partner and her just being our plaything. So she's going to drop out and then he'll get rid of her. Yay. And instead, no one backed down. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's like a chicken. There's a crash. Only this crash was people's genitals smashing against each other. Oh, my God. So that night, Kay brought her young daughters to the Noakes's put them to bed in the Noakes' spare bedroom, and then they got busy. And boy, howdy, did they. Kay described Harold as the ringmaster, suggesting various sexual positions and acts. And at their very first sexual experience, they did literally everything under the sun. There was a detailed description about this from a transcript, and it was that the women performed oral sex on each other. They both performed oral sex on Harold. Harold performed oral sex on them. And then Harold had vaginal and anal sex with both women. What? What else do you have to do after that? It's like, you might as well hang up the towel. Like, what is going on in Nebraska? How did he have the stamina? <laughs> is this guy? I am so confused by this story. I was telling Nathaniel about this and he's like, maybe he just thought he had one chance. So he's like, gotta do everything. Get it, get it in. <laughs> gotta get, get it in. in. Gotta get Literally. it in. Literally. Over and over again. 
<laughs> yeah, so they were balls to the wall right away. And this arrangement worked for several months. The Randy trio met two to three times a week, having trysts all over Nebraska and the Midwest because they would take various camping and hunting trips together. It seemed that the relationship soon went beyond just sex, and Kay began to rely on the Noakeses for affection and for support. So Kay's parents, the Hoyts, were starting to get concerned with how much time she was spending with this older couple, what was the nature of their relationship, and why Kay was turning to them in so many ways. For instance, she needed a new car, and she didn't go to her parents for the first time. She borrowed $600 from Harold instead, which was about four grand in today's money, so not insubstantial. When Kay came down with a really bad cold, instead of relying on her parents for help, she moved in with the Noakeses and they nursed her back to health. So her parents were like, yeah, they did. <laughs> this is the full like nurse get up. <laughs> Hello, nurse. You can imagine if you were her parents, this is a small town, you'd be like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Well, the Hoyts were right to be concerned. The relationship between Kay and the Noakeses was growing toxic and abusive. In early 1973, Kay was already getting frustrated that it seemed like Harold was truly never going to leave Ina. Duh. Yeah. I mean, he kind of, he set up his perfect situation. He's got two cakes and he's eating both of them at this point. (laughs) He's not changing the situation for anything. Well, he still keeps his family intact. Obviously, their grown children don't know anything about this arrangement, so he's still with their mother. He doesn't have to blow up any part of his life, and he gets constant sex with a beautiful woman 15 years his junior. So he doesn't want to change anything. So she's getting frustrated. She's frustrated that Ina isn't leaving either. She thought Ina would have taken off by now, and she's not going anywhere. And she desperately wanted to be the wife and primary partner, but Harold was, like I said, disinclined to make any changes to the arrangement. In March of that year, the Thruple took a trip to Kansas City, Missouri, where they went out dancing. Apparently, Harold spent most of the night dancing with Ina, or at least that was Kay's perspective. And when they arrived back at their motel, Kay unleashed on Harold for being so inattentive to her. She started yelling and cursing at him and called him a son of a bitch. Harold had a notoriously bad temper, and when she insulted him and got up and was yelling in his face, he responded by slapping Kay across the face so hard that she was knocked to the ground and developed a black eye. Yeah, that's a punch. Yeah, that's a punch. They said slapped, but I was like, that's that's a punch. That's a punch. Yeah, if you hit someone that hard, it doesn't fucking matter if it's open-handed or not. You should never hit anyone, like, in any way. But when people say slap, they always insinuate that it's, like, less intense. But if you're giving someone a black eye. And they're falling to the ground. Yeah. So this is obviously a disaster. This is going very poorly now. There's abuse. There's feelings. There's resentments. It's no longer a fun three-for-all, which I think happens to a lot of people who think that they are emotionally prepared to open up their marriages. But they're not. It's just, it's a very difficult line to walk. And I don't think that anyone in this situation was prepared for the toll it was going to take on them. No, and it's the 70s in Nebraska. I doubt they have anyone who they could talk to about it. Like, I feel like now you can actually go to therapy and there's like probably thruple counseling and ways that you can communicate with friends and family about this type of stuff. But back then you're like completely isolated too. Completely isolated. And you have to hide everything from everyone because they're looking at you asconce. Kay knew now. She was like, I'm done. I'm done with this. 
to her credit, she stood up and she was like, we're going home. You're driving me back home right now. We are done on this trip. I'm done with you. And they had a very tense drive back to Nebraska where they drove all night in dead silence because of the tension. And at that point, it seemed pretty obvious that the affair had run its course. For Kay, it was certainly over. Harold had, in her opinion, led her on used her, and then finagled her into constant threesomes with his wife while denying her the committed, monogamous relationship that she craved. Which, yeah, yeah, I mean, Andy's shrugging because <laughs> that's, you got in with a married man. You... Is exactly what, yeah. You went after a guy who had been married for over 20 years, for 26 years. I don't really know what you expected you were going to get yeah. out of this. So I don't feel terrifically bad for her. I feel bad that she was hit, obviously, but I don't feel bad that she feels led on in this situation because when you get with somebody who has a wedding ring on, he's not leading you on unless he's trying to tell you he's not married. Yeah. Well, Harold and Ina were not happy about this breakup. They were genuinely devastated. Kay had been a breath of fresh air and she had kind of revitalized their long marriage that had kind of gotten stale in the bedroom. Yeah. And Ina had discovered that through sharing Harold, not only was he happier, but she could pretty much guarantee that he wasn't going to leave her. So she was like, this is it. I've got it locked down. He has his plaything, but I'm involved. I know everything that's going on. No one's tricking me. Yeah, and if she's down for it, too, I mean, it seems like she enjoyed, it, like, going down on her, too. It yeah. sounds like she was having a good time as well. So they were less than happy about the end of the breakup. But Kay was very determined to end it. And this was just a very difficult period in the aftermath of this relationship for everybody because Kay was now mourning a three-plus-year relationship that she couldn't tell anyone about or talk about or... There was no one she could confide in because she would say, I was having an affair with Harold for two years and then with him and his wife for an additional year. No one would get that or understand her. So she was emotionally in a really bad place. And a month after ending the affair, the Noakeses were still trying to win her back. And Ina had called her on the phone. And when she heard Kay's voice, she realized that she was mentally in a really bad spot. So the couple raced to Kay's home where they witnessed her hitting one of her daughters for no reason. It was like some minor thing that her daughter did. So Harold actually intervened. And when he did, she threw an empty pill bottle at him and became absolutely hysterical. She then shoved a $20 bill into his shirt and told him to buy flowers for her girls for her funeral. So the Noakes thought at this point that she must have taken all of the pills that had been in the empty bottle yeah. she threw at them. Do they know what kind of bottle? I don't know what kind of pills they were, but they were of the variety that if you took too many of them, you could overdose. I think there was like laced with codeine potentially. Okay. And so they called Kay's parents and said, she's not well. She might have just swallowed a bunch of pills. She needs help. And the Whites rushed over. They ended up picking up Kay and the girls, and then they checked Kay into a mental hospital. Okay, that's the right thing to do. It is. And I guess that the therapist who was treating them was Harold's cousin, I believe. So he was like, my cousin works as a psychiatrist. He can get you into this clinic right now. So the Hoyts were, were glad that the Noxes had contacted them. Obviously, their daughter was not well. However, this is further mystifying them why these people are so involved in their daughter's life. And they can't help but ask, is this breakdown because of them? Yeah. 
Of course. After her release, Kay made it her mission to start dating and make up for all of the lost time she lost when she was with the Noakeses. She began several friends with benefits type relationships with at least seven men, but maybe more. Those are just the ones we know about over the course of only a couple months in the summer of 1973. Oh, that's like the summer of Summer living. of love, yeah. And some of these guys were married. Some were single. One was an ex-con. One was her boss. It's just weird because she says that she wants to make up for lost time, but then is doing this. So it's like, I don't really consider what she did with the Noakes' lost time. Oh, she well, was no. Herself. I mean, what she's saying is, I could have been with all of these like young men that wanted to be with me. And I was wasting my time with you guys, this older couple. So now that I'm free, I'm going to fuck whoever I want. I thought you meant like finding a suitable uh, partner to help her. Yeah, no, she was not doing that. She was absolutely <laughs> okay. not doing that. There's been some questions about maybe a personality disorder, Kay having one, or some sort of other mental health issue. It comes up later when we talk about a forensic psychiatrist weighs in on this case. And we'll talk about it then. But also there was a suggestion that all of this was to just get back at Harold. This is a small town. And the people live like door to door. The way the house, the town is built is the houses live like right next door to each other. So you can kind of hear what your neighbors are up to. And you can definitely see cars pulling up and leaving. It's like what you imagine those 50s neighborhoods where the houses are side by side and all the kids play out and everybody knows everybody's business. So there was no way that people didn't know what Kay was doing. And there was no way they weren't talking about it. And so, of course, it made it back to Harold. And it seems like that might have been a motivation for this sex binge is because if Harold wouldn't choose her, then she was going to remind him of what he'd lost and she'd also piss him off because she knew he was a jealous person. Well, if that was the goal, it succeeded disastrously. And I often don't put, I don't think anyone puts, succeed next to disastrously but that's what ensued, because if that was what she was going for, this just became a nightmare. I mean, it absolutely inflamed Harold. And he was calling her and begging her to stop seeing all these other men and to come back to their three-way affair. And when she refused, absolutely refused, he responded by doing some of the most cruel, juvenile, petulant Everything, all of these terrible things to her, like what a stunted high school boy would do when jilted. First of all, he responded by pouring weed killer all over Kay's front lawn, killing her grass, shrubs, and trees. Come on. Destroyed her whole lawn. During one exchange, Harold had called Kay a two-bit whore and told her all she needed was a red light for her door. And then days later, she mysteriously in the mail received a light bulb painted red. All of a sudden, graffiti that was very demeaning to Kay and her sexual proclivities and even called out her sexual partners by full name started appearing on roadsides, on overpasses, all throughout the town. So Kay went to the police with her concerns, particularly about the graffiti, and Harold and two of her other boyfriends were questioned, but no one was charged with a crime, and it never really went any further than that because the police didn't really care. Crazy. And he's like 50. 
Yeah, he's 45 at this point. 50. <laughs> Just round up. <laughs> well, 45 in 1970 Nebraska is basically 60. It's so like 80. Yeah. <laughs> so an 80-year-old man is going around spray painting and sending paint. Can you see him painting a light bulb like in his garage? Yes. And ready to send it That's exactly what he's doing. So bad. When harassment and intimidation failed to return their lover to them, shockingly, Ina and Harold decided to set a trap. One day in June, Ina lured Kay to the Noakes' home by saying that she had cut her hand badly with a box cutter and needed help bandaging it. So Kay obviously still had some sort of feelings for Ina because she did end up coming over to help her. And when she arrived, she could see that the door was open and Ina was standing in the living room holding a kitchen towel wrapped around her hand. But as soon as she crossed the threshold, Harold had been waiting behind the door and he slammed it shut. And Ina just whips the towel off to reveal a totally healthy, uncut hand. Like, haha, you've been trapped. Now, what happened next is confusing and very bizarre. We don't know for sure. Kay would later describe what happened during this ambush and assault. But some of the particulars just don't make any sense. For instance, Ina told Kay after she realized she'd been tricked that Harold had wanted to have a private conversation with her and that they were necessitating that by tricking her into coming over. Okay. And that... Ina was going to leave so they could have this conversation. But for some reason, she took Kay's car. She drove Kay's car to her job that day. Now, we don't know if Kay let her take the car, if this was all forced, if she's trapped and she's stuck there against her will. There is definitely some coercion happening here because later she ends up escaping. But we don't know what's going on when Ina takes off in Kay's car, which she does. Around that point... I guess Harold tells her that he wants her to see something that's in the basement. They go down to the basement where he has a loaded deer rifle and he hands it to Kay and he tells her to shoot him because his life is not worth living if Kay is not in it. What? Yeah. So she's like, of course, no. Of course I'm not killing you. This is bizarre. So melodramatic. Narcissistic dramatics. Yeah. And so she goes back upstairs, and at that point, he tried to get Kay to have sex with him, which she refused. And when he turned to go into the kitchen, Kay took her chance to flee, running to the door, getting it open, running outside. And she was running across the street when Harold ran after her, but he slipped as he was stepping on or off the stoop. That's what happens when you're 80. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is also what happened. (laughs) He fell three feet down off the stoop and he ended up injuring his right shoulder very badly. Yeah, bones get fragile. Drink some milk. (laughs) Got milk, Harold? So then even though he was injured, he sprung up and he still continued to run after Kay, catching her across the street and forcibly pulling her back into their home, ripping her bra and dress in the process. Jesus. It's terrifying. Terrifying. This is violent. And obviously it was very scary for Kay because the moment they got back in the house, she ended up vomiting at his feet and then passing out. Oh my God. I feel like it had to be a stressed reaction. Yes. It calls into question though the stuff that Donna was saying earlier about how like whenever there was big news, Kay would pass out. It could have been an actual, like, physical condition. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that there had to be something with her nervous system going on. 
rather than her just seeking attention. Because if this is how she responded to this very, very stressful and traumatic event, then maybe it was just a way she responded to big news and trauma and changes. Yeah, but I mean, I guess Donna can definitely feel as though that's what it was, but it's... Who knows? Definitely. Yeah. And none of the literature and anything I read about this case, did they say that she had been diagnosed with anything like that? And in fact, it was suggested the opposite. So I do not know. So she passes out. And when she came to, Harold was in a lot of pain because of his shoulder injury. And so she woke up and he said, hey, I'm going to drive you back to your car and I'm going to get Ina and we're going to go to the ER because I'm in a lot of pain, but I really, really want to continue. So I'll let you leave if you promise to come back later and we can continue this conversation. And she was like, sure, psycho, anything I have to say to get the hell out of this house, I'm going to say. So she was like, absolutely, 100%, I'm going to come back. Thank you so much for driving me to my car just so she could get to safety. And then she was like, yeah, fuck those people. I'm never speaking to them again. Wild. Which is a very strong reaction to people who tricked you, ambushed you, and assaulted you. Yeah, so she was over it. They still were not over it. Harold tried to call Kay several times, and she began just not answering her phone, hanging up on him. She was just refusing calls and basically was like, leave me alone. So in desperation later that month, Harold even went to see her father, Edwin Hoyt, at his plumbing shop to ask how Kay was doing. Now... The Hoyts did not know the extent of the sexual relationship between their daughter and the Noakeses, but they knew the relationship was not good. Apparently, even in the early days of the breakup, Harold had said all this shit about how much money he had spent on her. He had given her the money for the car, how he had spent money taking her on trips, that he had put all this money into her so she just couldn't walk away, which is such bullshit and such controlling bullshit that some people do, especially guys, when they're like, you can't like walk away from me because I like bought this thing for you or I took you out all the time. I own you. I own you because I bought you a dinner. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So he was saying that she basically owed him all of this money. And so she went to him and she tried to give him $400. And it wasn't clear whether he actually accepted the $400 or not because he didn't want the money. He wanted her back and control over her. Yeah. That wasn't the point. But her parents knew about this. They knew that for some reason she was struggling to get a bunch of money together. She had put together $400 to give to Harold and her family knew about this and they didn't know why. So they assumed that something had gone on between the three of them and that Harold was now blackmailing Kay so that word wouldn't get out about her indiscretions. So Edwin hates this guy. He's involved with her daughter. He's potentially blackmailing her. He believes he's a liar. And he just shows up being like, hey, I really want to talk about Kay, how she's doing. Let's rap. And Edwin's like, get the hell out of here. You are a loser blackmailer, and I don't want you anywhere near my daughter. Yep. The following month in July of 1973, Harold poured sugar into the gas tank of Kay's car, damaging the engine very badly. So that appeared to be his last assault upon Kay. And she began to try to rebuild her life. Desperately worried about their daughter, Wilma and Edwin suggested that they all take a trip to Wisconsin to see Roger, the Hoyt's eldest son, and his family. So the Hoyt's already had a plan. They had planned this trip in advance. They were going to drive to Wisconsin visit with Roger and his family for a few days. And then they were going to go to Chicago where they could fly to Germany to see their other son, then come home 
from Germany, spend another week with Roger and his family, and then go home. And that was the plan. Now that they're seeing their daughter Kay is so troubled, they suggested that Kay needed to get the heck out of Dodge and have a change of scenery, be around family. So why doesn't she and the girls come with them to Wisconsin and that she could stay in Wisconsin with her brother's family while they went to Germany and then they would all drive back together later on? That's really smart. And the family, Roger and his wife, Jerrianne, knew about this because Wilma had confided in her daughter-in-law, Jerrianne, that things were going very wrong with Kay and with Kay's life. She had told her all about the harassment, all the things that was going on with the graffiti and her lawn being burned and the gas tank. And she also admitted that they had somehow around this point also discovered that Kay had lied about her ex-husband's abuse. So they are now reeling from the fact that they helped cause a good man to lose custody of his children and they had lied in court even though they didn't know they were lying in court. So she was growing frustrated with Kay because of that. And that also Kay was no longer opening up to them or treating them like parents. She was just kind of rudely dropping her kids off at their house whenever she wanted to babysit so she could go out on a million dates and do God knows what. Yep. So Wilma was saying... I just don't know. I'm finally fed up with her, which the rest of the family is like, well, it's been about time because she has been using and abusing and taking advantage of you guys forever. And now it's good that you're waking up and seeing this. And Wilma said that she understood that Kay could be a liar and manipulative, but she was just moreover concerned about her daughter, that she had an unhealthy relationship with the Noakeses and that she was concerned about how it seemed like they were now feuding. She told Jerry Ann that she wanted to get Kay and the girls out of McCook for a little while and quite honestly hoped that Kay would move out of town for good. She hoped that she would move to a different town and get a new job and have a new lease on life and start dating somebody appropriate and just get away from all of the drama. Because think about it, even without knowing all of the details of what's going on and how toxic had become, you're still talking about a relatively small town where her name is being graffitied everywhere, calling her a slut and all sorts of terrible things and linking her to different men in the town, some of whom are married. So as a parent, I would also be like, this is a bad place for you. This is a toxic environment. You need to figure out somewhere else to go where people don't treat you like this. Yeah. And is, does she have any tie to her ex-husband, to Duane, Or is it because she has full custody, it doesn't matter where she goes? Just go somewhere else. She doesn't have to be near him. And I think at this point, Dwayne had moved to Colorado or eventually he ends up in California, I think. I think Colorado. So I think he was in Colorado. At one point, he tried to get custody of full custody of the girls himself. But he, after spending thousands of dollars on lawyers and it not going anywhere, he finally just gave up. But she does not have to think about where her ex-husband is in order to move. She doesn't have to think about anyone but herself. So... Basically, her mom was saying maybe she'd even want to move to Wisconsin and be closer to her brother. That would be great. So this was all very well-intentioned, but unfortunately, as soon as Wilma and Edwin departed for Germany, all hell broke loose. Roger and Kay got into an epic fight the very first night that they were alone together. And it seemed that Roger 
was accusing Kay of spending more time with the Noakeses than she had trying to save her marriage. She was basically saying Dwayne was a really great guy. He was a stand-up guy. And you threw him away like trash. And now you're like doing God knows what with this older couple that are terrible people when you could have used that time to actually get yourself back on the rails for your kids, for your life, for the rest of our family, not to mention making mom and dad lie on the stand for you. And he was basically going into her about all of her choices. And she was not going to stand for that. So she started screaming back at him, getting within an inch of his face and just screaming at him. And so Roger said, if you don't stop screaming this close to my face, I'm going to bite you. And he did. He ended up biting her. On the face? And the face. Yeah, like he bit her lip or something, which is like very weird and just bizarre. So Kay at that point said, I'm out of here. I'm gone. She woke up her kids in the middle of the night. She tried to get... No. Yeah, these poor kids. They have been through the ringer. She tried to get Roger to give her her parents' car keys because the parents had driven everybody up or yeah, over. on purpose. Yes, on purpose to keep the family together. And they were like, no, we're not giving you mom and dad's car keys. So they ended up dropping her and the children off at the Amtrak and they took the train back to Nebraska. Oh my God. Yeah. So that did not go as planned. Most of you have probably heard us sing the praises of Pros, the world's most personalized hair care. And for those that haven't, we want to tell you about the incredible results we're seeing since using our customized Pros products. Andy, you know that there's no one size fits all solution to hair care. And that's what makes Pros so unique. I somehow have combination skin and hair. I have greasy roots at the same time. I have dry, sad ends. And I have never been able to find anything that works for my greasy roots and my sad, dry ends until now. You know I personally deal with a lot of tangles with my natural curls and really wanted to figure out a way to manage them. As you know, Jesse, I am such a fan of zero maintenance hair. Just wash and go. And so I was very excited to see how these products worked for my hair. That's true. You were like annoyingly like so great at just taking a shower and walking out the door. No makeup, no hair product. You kill me. Pros knows there's more to you than just your hair type. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with her in-depth hair quiz, which is how we got started. And I love that so much. Pros asked me really unexpected things like what was my zip code so they could see the environmental effects on my hair, which obviously we have quite a bit living in LA, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I answered 500 questions on my OkCupid profile so I could meet Nathaniel. So I was really down with this type of (laughs) quiz to find my perfect hair products, and it works. Pros analyzes over 85 personal factors and determines a unique blend of ingredients to treat your exact concerns. Pros also has a review and refine feature, and it lets me tweak my formulas for any reason, like change of address, hair color, or my diet. I recently switched dyes and colors, and it was easy to make a few changes just because of that. As a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All of their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation, and I'm telling you guys, it's fun, and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash lovemurder. 
That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash lovemurder for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. When the Hoyts returned to the States, their plan was to spend another week with Roger's family before returning home. But that was foiled when Kay called them claiming she had broken her arm and she needed them to come home immediately to help her with the girls. The Hoyts did so only to later find out from Kay's doctor that she had not, in fact, broken her arm. But when she went to the doctor, she was so hysterical and so insistent that she had that the doctor had ended up putting her arm in a soft cast just to placate her, even though there was no break. Yeah. Yeah. So Wilma and Edwin arrived home on Thursday, September 20th and spent the next couple days catching up with friends and neighbors, paying bills, doing all the stuff that you have to do when you get home from a long-term vacation. On Sunday, September 23rd, they hosted Wilma's mother, Flossie, eldest sister, Donna's family. She was married and she had four kids, as well as Kay and her daughters for a midday family supper. Everybody left at 4.30 p.m. with Kay being the last to leave. Wilma cleaned the kitchen, leaving one pan to soak in the sink, and the couple received a phone call from their son, Herbert, who was stationed in South Carolina around 7.30 p.m. Herbert would be the last person to speak to Wilma and Edwin while they were alive, except for the killer, or killers, of course. The next day, Kay tried to call her parents several times with no answer. She alerted her sister Donna, and the two women searched the empty house, discovering the pan still soaking in the sink, which was just not like Wilma. She wasn't a woman that would go to bed leaving a pan in the sink. Just like me. Definitely not like me. I will leave a full-on, a full-ass sink full of dishes and be like, I'll get it in the morning. (laughs) But yeah, that Wilma's an Andy. So she was like, nope, I'm going to clean this before I go to bed. And she didn't. So they were alarmed about that. But other than that, there really wasn't any signs of foul play. There was nothing amiss in the house. There was nothing missing. The only thing that was missing was Wilma's purse and Edwin's wallet and the car was gone. So given that altogether, it seems like they could have just gone out. But the fact that they clearly hadn't been home the night before because their pajamas were still laid out on the bed was concerning. And also was concerning was that Wilma had very, very bad arthritis. In fact, later on, her children speculated that the reason why her rings were still on her fingers was because the killer could not remove them because of her arthritic hands. Okay. So she had really bad arthritis. So they were like, she wouldn't leave her arthritis medicine behind. So this doesn't make sense. So Donna was a amateur pilot, so she was even flew her plane over her parents' house and the nearby area to try to figure out where their car was. She didn't see it. And she said that she was trying to remain calm, but Kay was going absolutely wild. She was anxious. She was paranoid. Well, Donna's like, okay, we need to relax. Like, maybe they're just out somewhere. And in trying to present the best possible outcome, Kay was like, no, they're dead. Something's bad happened. I'm telling you, this is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. And so Donna was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Okay. Well, that's crazy that you're going that far. But if you really believe it, like, let's obviously get the police involved and let's figure out what we can do. And so they did call the state police. But since there was no evidence of foul play and Wilma and Edwin were adults, they were on the older side. But they were not so elderly to the point where they needed help. They lived completely independently. 
and also they're not actually that old. I mean, if you see the picture, which we'll put up on the Instagram, they look old. They look like what we think of as elderly today. But really, I think that they were in their mid to late 50s. Yeah. So there's no reason. The police are like, look, if their car's gone and their wallet and purse are gone, maybe they just went to do a trip and they don't have to tell their adult children where they go. Yeah. The kids are like, well, what do we do now? And there was some also like uncles, cousins, extended family members in the region as well. So they would all meet up at Kay's house to have meetings about how they're going to find their parents. And they decided to hire a private investigator named Robert Sodden who was a recently retired homicide detective and a World War II badass. He was like at D-Day. This guy was for real. Together, they alerted media outlets all over Nebraska, Kansas, and Colorado to the disappearance of the older couple, which they're like, if the police aren't going to do anything about this, we'll get it out to the media ourselves that this elderly couple is missing. And Donna and her husband, who both were amateur pilots, would also fly their plane over trying to figure out what happened to their car. They didn't find it, but eventually a relative, I think a town or two over, discovered their car in a hospital parking lot. Huh. Yeah. So the police were called and it was their car. And they noted that it appeared that the car had not been driven since Sunday evening or maybe very early morning Monday because it had been rainstorms all day Monday and had caused mud to be everywhere. And the car was pristine. So it clearly had not been driven in the rain and mud storm. The other thing that was interesting was that they could tell that it had not been Wilma or Edwin who had last driven the car the seat was suspiciously close to the steering wheel, which suggested a very short person had been driving, while the Hoyts were both pretty tall. The PI began to look into the disappearance and could not find an obvious motive for wanting this nice, modest farming couple dead. They didn't have a lot of money. There was no feuds. There was no, nobody that they didn't really get along with. All of the children had alibis for the night of the disappearance, and Kay's alibi was solid, but it was still a bit suspect. She had hired a babysitter to come to her house and the babysitter arrived at 6.30 p.m. At that point, she told the sitter that she was waiting for a phone call before she could head out. So play with the kids, but I'm going to hang around until this phone call comes through. But three hours later, she was still at the house and seemingly this phone call had not come in that she had been waiting for. And at 9.30 that night, she finally dismissed the babysitter. Okay, so she just like was hanging out at the house with the babysitter. She was just hanging out at the house and the whole thing was kind of odd because it's just an odd thing to do to hire a babysitter and not leave the house. The other part was odd was that when the police asked her who she was meeting or who she was trying to get a call from or why she didn't go out that night, she was extremely evasive and refused to say who she was potentially meeting that evening. Huh. Which is a little odd. So Kay was also acting bizarre. She was threatening to commit suicide and she was also doing stuff like her brother stayed at her house while they were trying to figure out where their parents were and she would do stuff like in the middle of the night wake her daughters up and move them to a different room for seemingly no reason and so she was doing this like kind of this like bizarre stuff so the siblings told the PI and the PI began to think that this could be potentially a guilt reaction either she had something to do with the parents murder or 
it's something and somebody in her life that was the one that injured her parents. Yeah. So she's scared and moving them. Exactly. Like she's worried somebody's coming for her as well. And that's why she's moving her daughters. It's why she's freaked out. It's also if she really does suspect the Noxes of this, maybe she's also suicidal because she doesn't want their whole relationship to come out or she's feeling guilt about having a relationship with them in the first place. So the PI very correctly pinpoints this has to be the entryway of whoever came into the Hoyt's life. And he begins to drill down on Kay. And Kay gave the names of all the men she was involved with, including Harold. And she also explained all of the harassment that she had faced. Although in her initial conversations, she doesn't immediately point the finger at Harold. She's like, oh, I don't know. These things were happening to me. It's super weird. She doesn't immediately throw him under the bus for some reason. That does happen later. But originally, she's just kind of like, yeah, he's just one of these other guys that I was sleeping with and I'm not sleeping with anymore. It's a little different. Little different. The PI ended up interviewing several of the men that she'd been involved with, and they were all cleared for the harassment and for what happened to the Hoyts. Harold, however, was another story. Kay had told the PI and the police about his obsession with her. And he was the one that was interesting to them as far as most likely suspect. This was also because the family did know that Edwin and Harold had exchanged some harsh words back in June when Harold had stopped by Edwin's workplace. So if there was any sort of feuding this family had going on, they knew that Edwin and Wilma did not like the Noxes. Harold was brought in and questioned by P.I. Sodden at the police station, and he admitted to the sexual affair and the ambush on Kay, but denied that he had spray-painted the graffiti and some of the other things that he did absolutely do and would later actually come clean about. But he did categorically deny having anything to do with the Hoyt's disappearance. Harold told them that he had recently purchased a 22 caliber pistol as well, he claimed that he had bought the gun recently because of his shoulder injury it made it impossible for him to use the hunting rifles that he used to that had the kickback. He also refused to take a polygraph. After a two-hour interrogation, Harold was released, but suspicion remained. The very next day after he was first pulled into the police station was Wednesday, October 3rd, some 10 days after Wilma and Edwin Hoyt had gone missing, and the very sad day that the body parts were discovered in Harry Strong Lake. When Wilma Hoyt's jeweler confirmed that he had custom-made the ring with the multicolored gemstones for her, the mystery of the Hoyt's disappearance became the mystery of their double homicide. P.A. Sodden believed that the killer was certainly one of Kay's lovers, so he came down hard on her about her personal life, particularly what happened with Harold, and then eventually drew out all of the details of the three-way affair, which is why we know so much about their first experience and the sexual things they did together, like an almost inappropriate amount <laughs> And this was all on the transcript, like the police transcript, which is insane. And so uh, James Hewitt wrote about this. During his questioning of Kay, Sodden elicited a great deal more information about the sexual aspects of the affair than was necessary, even in the name of careful investigative work. Perhaps the details appealed to his purient interest. 
Perhaps he felt descriptions of steamy sex in a transcript would make entertaining reading in station houses and patrol offices across Nebraska. Whatever the reason, what he managed to get from Kay could be used as a primer for anyone hoping or planning to engage in three-way sex. Oh, my God. That's so funny. (laughs) Maybe he just wanted the primer. He wanted, he's like, wait, okay, so how did he do it? What did he say exactly to you? And then what did he do? And then you did what? And then what was she doing? (laughs) At the same time? Well, how did that even work? Was, who was upside down? Wait, was somebody <laughs> off the bed? Can you explain? Show me. Can you draw me a picture? <laughs> Basically, this is a criminal investigation, and this is what he's asking her about. So James Hewitt, who I believe is an attorney, went on to say, in today's more circumscribed climate, a complaint by Kay about the invasive nature of his interrogation might well interest a plaintiff's attorney or the ACLU, even though Sodden was working for the family and Kay wished to cooperate in finding whoever had killed her parents and mutilated their bodies. But yeah, there's a lot about their sexual behavior in that. So Harold was hauled back down to the station, this time with Ina in tow, and they were separated. And Ina was questioned for the first time. Harold was questioned again. Harold now admitted to the threesome because they said, Kay told us, we know it happened. Well, Ina insisted that she had discovered her husband cheating and she was aware of his infidelity, but she herself had never engaged in such behavior. Oh. So Kay saying it happened. Harold saying, oh, hell yeah, it happened. But Ina is saying, nope, never happened. So they're trying to get Ina to cop to it and they said well Kay told us and your husband is in the other room right now and he just told us so you might as well just come clean about everything and she's like nope he would never say that because it didn't happen so they go and get Harold and they bring Harold into the room with her and they're like hey Harold remember when you just told us that your wife was involved in three-way sex with you and Kay for almost a year and he goes he looks at his wife she looks at him and he goes nope I never said that oh my god And she's like, see, I told you. She's the puppet master. So she's the one in charge. And that's what they got out of it. They said, we need to build a better case against Harold. But we have to keep looking at Ina because she's clearly running this show. She's a pressure point for him. If he's willing to just straight up lie in a way that we know he's lying in front of us in order to not piss her off. Yep. So they're like, okay, we got some good intel about how we're going to get to him eventually, which is through Ina. And then they went about gathering evidence. So Harold and Ina only had each other for alibis, and it's already clear that they're willing to lie for one another. (laughs) The pattern of the gunshot wound that was found on that piece of skin was consistent with a bullet fired from a twenty-two pistol, the very same gun Harold had just purchased. Yeah. And remember how she could shoot the eye out of a hawk? Exactly. And furthermore, Harold had been seen taking his boat out in the evening only a couple days after the murder. Okay. Or the disappearance, rather. Yeah. This is all pretty good circumstantial evidence. The Noakes lawyered up and continued to deny any involvement in the murders. A search warrant was obtained and exercised at their home. But... Oddly, there was nothing that came up. They could not find any evidence that a murder had taken place at the Noakes home or the Hoyt home. At the Noakes's, they had found a bloody nightgown, but it ended up being period blood. And then they had also found some blood in the basement, but it ended up being animal blood, which makes sense because they're hunters. Gross. So they were pretty stymied at this point, but they knew 
that it was the Noakes's. They just could not prove it at this point. To gather more evidence, the detectives applied for and were granted a warrant to bug the Noakes's household. Whoa. So yeah, it's all very super spy stuff. They waited till they were both out of town. And I guess that this like one detective had practiced lockpicking. And so he had done it a bunch of times in the station. But then when he got there, he was super nervous and couldn't do it. So they had to call a locksmith. They're like, oh, my God, this is top secret. But you got to come unlock this door for us and then lock it back up and make it look like we were never here. And the guy's like, sure, whatever, dude. And so then they went in and they put a bug in a light in their living room and then a light in their bedroom. And that's where they kept the bugs. But apparently the bugs interfered with their TV reception. So they called a TV repairman and they knew this because obviously they're listening now. They're surveilling them and they had to like get to the TV repairman now and go like do your best to fix it. But do not reveal that there's recording oh, voices Oh my God, this is here. like the worst undercover case <laughs> <So> ever. <worse. laughs> so they ended up listening for nearly three weeks to the Noakes's. And unfortunately, there was no big smoking gun the villain explains all and all the why and the how and how it broke down like anything that you could just bring to a jury and say done this is done but there were a couple things that were pretty obvious about their involvement number one harold said to ina very clearly one night we should have removed the rings how is that not that's pretty clear obviously that's referring to wilma's ring that helped identify the bodies but in a court of law, you could say, oh, we are talking about something else. We were talking about anything else. So we should have removed the rings before we took a bath, before we washed the dishes. You could say that it was something else. Number two, the couple extensively discussed their plan for if and when they got arrested. They had decided that they would rather die than go to prison or face the electric chair. So they planned to carry codeine-laced pills on their body with them at all times and ingest an overdose amount if they were arrested. And they have that recorded. They have that recorded. How is that not? It was enough. So this was enough. They said, the prosecutor was like, okay, we have enough now that we can arrest them. And hopefully after we arrest them, we can essentially separate them and somebody's going to flip on somebody. That was the goal because they still needed more. Everything was still, it could be argued or it was kind of circumstantial. But they're hoping they can get a full-on confession out of one of them. So they arrested them on December 20th, 1973. And thanks to the audio surveillance, the police knew about the suicide plot and were able to remove the drugs from Ina and Harold before they had the opportunity to kill themselves. The sheriff discovered 53 codeine-laced pills in a plastic bag tucked into Harold's waistband. And Ina was found with 81 pills between her bra and purse. Oh, my God. Yeah, they were going for it. So the suicide was out, but neither, they didn't do this when they arrested them together. They waited to do it when they were being processed separately at separate jails. Okay. So they know, obviously, that their own attempt was thwarted, but they do not know if the other person's pills had been discovered. So there's still a question now, is my spouse going to go forward with the suicide plot, even though I cannot because they took my drugs? And Harold especially was having an extraordinarily hard time in jail and being separated from Ina. He was depressed, suicidal, anxious, and his blood pressure was skyrocketing to a genuinely dangerous level. Harold even pried the lens from his glasses, smashed it, and attempted to use the glass to slit his wrists. 
but the attempt was unsuccessful. He was also extremely lonely. I'm sorry, you just killed an elderly couple. I'm sorry you're lonely and your blood pressure is skyrocketing. Maybe that's a result from you killing someone and feeling guilty about it. I'm sorry, that just sent me off the rails. Oh, he's so lonely. Yes, I agree with you. But this was also a tactic based on the sheriff. Like, he didn't have a cellmate. He didn't have anyone to talk to. He was completely alone with his thoughts where they wanted to leave him because they wanted him to stew in it. And the sheriff even made an arrangement where none of the deputies, no one who would ever talk to him, was allowed to go in to see him at all. The sheriff brought every single one of his meals himself because if he was going to say anything, he wanted him to say it to him. And he even printed up a sign, a poster with his Miranda rights, and he put it in his cell. And anytime he was trying to make conversation with the sheriff, the sheriff would just point to the poster and say, you could talk to me, but remember that. And it was in this state of mind that he did eventually break. So this was also some clever maneuvering on the sheriff's part because when he knew he was really close to breaking and desperately wanted to talk to somebody, anybody, he used something that he knew from the audio surveillance, which they did not know that they had found. They had talked about having a code word that in order to get word to the other person that they were going to take the pills, they were going to say, I can't take it anymore. My back is killing me. And that would be like the code word for I'm going to do it now. And so the sheriff came in and he's like, I know you've been really dying to hear about how your wife's doing and she's doing okay, but she said her back's really hurting her. She can't handle it anymore. So that, of course, made Harold think that she's about to kill herself or she might have already killed herself or she's already started the process. He doesn't know when this message wow, was passed. that's tricky. Yeah. So when he said that and just the whole, I think it had been a couple of weeks of this whole relationship going on and not talking to anyone, not having any company and living in his own head, he finally just completely broke. And he's like, I know, I know the sign. I know my rights, but I'm just going to tell you what happened that night. And he confessed. So Harold said on the night of the disappearance, he and Ina decided to drive 15 miles to the Hoyt's farm, which was in a neighboring town. And they did this, they said, to discuss Kay and the Hoyt's disapproval of the Noakes' involvement in Kay's life. It was kind of implied that he wanted to bury the hatchet with them, and he might have hoped in doing so he could win back Kay. Okay. I'm curious about what the intention even of going over there was, so that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Also, this doesn't seem like the type of climate where we're talking about a Sunday night after 9 p.m., just a drop-in meeting with people that you don't especially like. Yeah. No, I'm in bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they were very soon to be in bed at this time. So he said that that was the purpose. They, the purpose of going over was trying to finally have a meeting about bearing the hatchet about everything that had been going on and hopefully coming to an understanding. But he said that he knew Edwin Hoyt had a temper. And since what they were going to be discussing was sensitive and he had the shoulder injury so he couldn't defend himself if Edwin attacked him, he decided to bring his twenty-two pistol with him. I call bullshit. We also don't know if and how the Noakes knew that the Hoyts were home and alone, as they were not even supposed to be in Nebraska. Had Kay not lied about her arm being broken, they wouldn't have been sitting ducks for the Noakes. They would have been in Wisconsin with their son. And also, they had hosted a family dinner that day. How did 
they know that somebody hadn't slept over, decided to spend the night. They always had family coming and going. So somehow they knew that they were home and alone. Yep. They arrived just after 9 p.m. and Harold claimed that the Hoyts actually invited them in. He said that he asked the Hoyts to come back to his own house, which was closer to Kay's, and that they could call Kay and have her come over to the Noakes' as well so that they could all speak and squash their issues. The Hoyts allegedly accepted this invitation, but no call to Kay was ever made. There's no phone records of anyone calling Kay from the Hoyts that evening or from the Noakes's. Also, Harold said that he drove the Hoyts to the Noakes' house in his car. So he's in his car with the Hoyts while Ina followed behind driving the Hoyts' car, which does not sound like a normal, we invited them to come over to our house and they agreed. That sounds like a kidnapping. Yeah. So James Hewitt speculates a little bit on how this whole driving thing actually happened and what was going on and whether or not they were coerced. And he was saying, well, I don't know because I don't think he could drive and hold a gun to their head at the same time, but I don't think he was. I think he was holding a gun to Edwin's head who was driving or Edwin was driving and he was holding a gun to Wilma's head. Yeah. And that's why Ina was following in another car behind. That's my suspicion. This is not what he's admitting to. In his confession, he's saying, oh, yeah, they totally agreed to come over. We were going to have a nice chat together. Nice chat at gunpoint. Well, yeah. He maintains he did not have the gun out at this point. Of course. Point. Of course. But it's just, yeah, this is he just also, my speculation. Yeah. In front of Ina said that he didn't smash them both out. So I don't really believe anything he says. Smash them both out. Oh, man. So Harold claimed that on the drive over, Edwin got extremely agitated and accused Harold of being a lying blackmailer. And when they arrived at the Noakes' house, Harold pointed out that his neighbors lived extremely close by and that he didn't want them to hear the two men fighting, especially because the subject matter and Kay and the nature of their relationship was kind of sensitive. So he's like, we don't want to alert them to our argument. I don't want them hearing our raised voices. Let's go down to the basement. It's the only place in the house where our neighbors can't hear us talking. So he said that the Hoyts were like, sure, let's absolutely go down into your basement. That sounds like a great idea. And he said that, in fact, Edwin went down the cellar stairs first, which makes no sense because they'd never been to this house. So how would they just walk into the house and immediately go to the cellar? Had they Because they didn't know where it was. This is his confession, and we have to take it at some type of value because he's admitting to these murders, but all of the details don't really match up. So he claimed that Edwin went downstairs first and in their basement, there was a type of family room. And then there was a spare bedroom off the fa basement family room. And then there was a laundry as well. So there's three rooms in the basement. He said that they came down into the family room and Edwin went into the laundry room. He followed Edwin into the laundry room and they began arguing while the women stayed in the downstairs family room. He said that throughout the argument, all of a sudden, Edwin turned and started advancing upon him with his fist out. Like he was about, he was going to take a couple steps and swing at Harold. So Harold said he didn't even think about it. It was like self-defense. He just pulled out his gun and without warning, without saying, hey, I've got a gun, back off, anything. He didn't say anything. He just shot him in the chest and boom, he's down. Okay. So he said that when the shot rang out, Wilma allegedly screamed, why didn't you kill Kay? And then started trying to run up this basement stairs to escape. 
he said that he came out of the laundry room and he shot Wilma as she fled upstairs. Yep, that's not self-defense. No, and killing her in one shot. He said, so the police were like, well, you must be a really good marksman. if Because he also said he was, he was shooting left-handed because of his right shoulder injury. So he's somehow left-handed, killed both of these people in one shot. So at that point, Ina ran outside to see if any of the neighbors had been alerted. But everything was quiet at that point on the street. She returned to the basement and Harold told her to leave. He said, you get out of here. I want you nowhere near here because I'm going to call the police. I'm going to turn myself in. And I don't want them to think that you were involved. And she refused. She said, nope, I'm standing by you. We're going to get through this together. You're not calling the police. I don't want you going anywhere. So Harold felt really sick at that point. He went upstairs. He vomited, apparently. And then he came back down and they were like, okay, well, we need a plan. And they decided to dispose of the bodies in an effort to hide the murders. And Harold said that they decided to dismember them because of his shoulder injury. He did not feel like he could carry or help carry full corpses up the stairs. Okay. He said that he went about dismembering the bodies entirely on his own using an axe and a butcher's knife. And that Ina's only contribution to the murders were that she helped wrap the body parts in butcher's paper afterwards and put them in their freezer. And this is also, remember, it's a hunting couple, so it's kind of like they're just dressing deer and butchering an animal here. I guess that they had previously owned a little cafe and store where they had to butcher their own meat as well. So in some sick way, maybe this is something they know how to do in some fashion. He said that the only other thing that she did was drive the Hoyt's car to the hospital to dump it. And that's why the seat was so close to the steering wheel because she was barely five foot tall. I mean, but she also cleaned the basement and she must have done a damn good job because not a drop of human blood had been found by the crime scene technicians. That's wild. Yeah, because they said it was just animal blood. They said it was just animal blood. So it's a mystery about how they didn't find any human blood, but they found animal blood. Yeah, but if there was animal blood on the floor already and then they covered the floor with something. And there was a rug that they put down to like kind of pick up all of the blood from the dismemberment but you'd think that immediately there was blood on the floor because of just being shot but I guess she was just somehow a really good cleaner so Harold said that after dismembering killing and cleaning all night they didn't sleep a wink and they both went to work at 8 a.m the next morning with the body parts in the freezer and he was able to return home midday he had to like check in with his road crew but he was often out driving around and apparently as part of his job there was some sort of controlled burn big burn where they were like getting rid of a bunch of stuff and so he went he said he was going to man the fire and he actually went to the fire and threw in a bunch of evidence their bloody clothes their purse their wallet the axe that he'd used for the dismemberment and he destroyed it all in this mega fire that he was burning for work so he did all of that, and then they both got home later in the evening from work, and they decided to load their boat and car up with the body parts and go out for a late-night fishing trip where they dumped all of the body parts in the water. They apparently unwrapped 
each body part. So they took the paper off and then threw all the body parts in the lake, which, of course, came back to haunt them. And then they had a bonfire on the shore with all of the bloody paper that they had used to wrap the body parts in to get rid of that evidence after. Okay. Just because they didn't want to touch the body parts? I think that they were thinking that maybe fish or predators were going to eat the body parts more easily if they weren't wrapped in paper or somehow the paper could be traced back to them if they surfaced. I'm not sure. It was just more they thought that it would make more sense to just dump the body parts alone for whatever reason in the lake. So that was his full confession. And having come clean, Harold finally relaxed. The police said it was almost literally like a weight had been lifted off of his shoulders. The next day when the doctor returned to take Harold's vitals, his blood pressure had returned to completely normal. Hmm. It was just the weight of this confession on him. So plea bargaining now took several days because they have attorneys on each side. And he said, I want to make a deal. I don't care what you give me. But Ina was not involved in this. She didn't kill anyone. She didn't dismember anyone. She didn't know I was going to do this. I didn't know I was going to do it until I killed Edwin. And then, yes, I, I purposely killed Wilma. You can throw the book at me, but I don't want her to have any jail time whatsoever. So he was really rallying on her behalf. And we don't know if that's because of guilt. He got her into this or if she really didn't do anything because James Hewitt made a point that if he really did think she was dead from suicide, why wouldn't he have just tried to put everything on her? Because he could have blamed her for everything to mitigate his own sentence, but he didn't. Even if he thought she was dead, he still told a story that completely made him look like the sole perpetrator with an assist from her, obviously. They kind of went along with that. They knew that he was lying about a lot of the aspects, but they just wanted to collar the people responsible for this. So they ended up making a deal and Harold was charged with two counts of murder, second degree in the case of Edwin Hoyt and first degree for Wilma, given that if you go by his confession, there was not the intent to kill or the premeditation with Edwin, but there was with Wilma. And Ina got off extremely easily. She was only charged with two counts of unlawful disposal of a dead body. That's it. Wow. On January 10th, 1974, they both pled guilty to their charges. Ina was sentenced to two years in prison. Well, Harold got two back-to-back life sentences. Now, Harold later granted only one interview in his, I don't know, it had to be 40-some years in prison that he spent, and it was to author James Hewitt. And this is what he said about his plea deal and what everybody told him about the time he was actually going to spend in jail. He said that his attorney and an officer of the state parole board both advised him that he would be out of prison after serving no more than 20 years, despite getting back-to-back life sentences. These men believed that the state of Nebraska Board of Pardons, consisting of the governor, the attorney general, and the secretary of state, would commute Harold's sentences to a term of years. So he would then be eligible for parole. The Pardons Board commuted 32 life sentences between 1973 and 1990. But the Pardons Board threw Harold a curve when in 1990 it adopted a policy to no longer commute life sentences to a term of years in Nebraska, at least when this book was written, I think in 2015, a life sentence means just that, life in prison. 
So when he made the deal, he was under the impression that he was going to serve 20 years. And instead, they were like, surprise, it's forever. He appealed quite a few times, but Harold's motions were all denied. Harold did end up spending the rest of his life in prison, where he worked in a photo lab and was visited by his loyal wife, Ina, two times a week. Ina had been released after two years in prison herself and had moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, where she worked in various business-type office jobs and attended church with her son and his family. Like I said, Harold gave his one and only interview ever to James Hewitt in 2007, and he changed considerable parts of his story. He denied that Ina had participated in the sexual affair now, which I believe had to do with the fact that she's still visiting him. And the one thing she never wanted out was that she was a sexual freak who had done the three ways with him because she was a proper, older, church-going woman. So the last thing she wanted was more publicity. So I'm pretty sure she told him, you have to, if you grant an interview, you say you lied and you weren't telling the truth earlier and that I never participated in those three ways. So yeah, obviously she did. And then the other part of the story that he changed was that he said he did not actually bring the gun to the Hoyt's house, that he forgot he actually got the gun while he was at his own house and they had started arguing. And they just came over at 9 p.m. on a Sunday. Yeah. It's all lies. I mean, that's what James Hewitt says. So the author says, I did this whole interview with him. I interviewed him for something like five hours and I didn't feel like I got the real story and I don't think... Anyone got the real story in 1973 either. He told some version of events and only a few things are for sure, which is there was a threesome sexual affair. There was obsession. There was harassment. There was stalking. And then the Hoyts died at the hands of Harold and probably also Ina Noakes. But we're left wondering why. To me, it definitely seems like it was premeditated. They kidnapped these people. They took them back to their house to murder them. But it just does not make sense. Like, what purpose would this serve? You're not going to get Kay back by killing her parents. Yeah, but it could have just been temper. He really did want to talk about them having a better relationship and getting Kay back. And then tempers flared and he just went off the handle. Yeah, because if they both had tempers, I feel like that's what I'm... It just seems so reckless and pointless. I can the see whole that. Thing. I mean, but to your point, we're about to get into what a forensic psychiatrist named Dr. John Baldwin believed after reviewing the case and the testimony. And he shared his conclusions with James Hewitt in the book In Cold Storage. And this is what this is what he thinks was happening. And it's it's kind of what you're saying, Andy. Dr. Baldwin felt that Harold Noakes was probably tired and bored with his wife that he was flattered by the attention of Kay Hine. And once he started receiving her sexual favors, he could not bear to stop. He became addicted. Dr. Baldwin believes that Harold could not bear to believe that Kay tired of the affair after she realized that marriage to Harold was not in the cards. And he then transferred his anger at her onto her parents. Harold thought the parents were the problem since they had chastised him about demanding blackmail money from Kay. Because he had been so successful in enticing Kay and Ina into a menage a trois, he believed he could convince the Hoyts that there was nothing amiss in their relationship with Kay. Kay had spurned him and turned to her parents for help, so the only way he could seek revenge was to pacify or eliminate the parents. 
Dr. Baldwin speculated that Noakes must have believed that if he could not persuade the Hoyts with logical arguments, he could intimidate them, which may have been his reason for taking the pistol along when visiting their home, if in fact he did take the gun, which we think he did. The ultimate act of shooting the Hoyts was a manifestation of Harold's belief that he had to win no matter what and to take revenge on Kay for leaving him. So I think to your point, when it was clear that they weren't going to come to any sort of agreement and they were never going to support a relationship between them and he wasn't going to win Kay back over, he said, fuck it, then you die. Think about how inflated his ego got when he set up that arrangement with his wife and sexual partner. It just sounds like he was kind of an egomaniac his whole life. The whole thing about Ina chasing him in high school and him being considered a catch and he's tall and dark and good looking and he's in charge of the highway department's road crews. So he's kind of got a boss type position. Seemed like he was very used to being able to get what he wanted. And this was a situation where no matter what he does, he's not getting what he wanted and he's resorting to worse and worse tactics. He's pissed. He's pissed. So furthermore, Dr. Baldwin thought that it was highly unusual for Ina to have been involved in the sexual relationship and actually speculated that the Noakeses might have had a shared psychosis, a falia du, a mental disorder in which the personality is seriously disorganized. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. I kind of think that Ina was, I mean, he was an emotionally abusive person. He used the threat of no longer being with him or, or having a loving marriage as a way to coerce her to do several things. I don't know if it was a shared psychosis getting into the three-way as much of a coercion about somebody who had conditioned his wife for 26 years to do everything he said. Dr. Baldwin thought Kay might well have been bipolar, which again, this is Dr. Baldwin's Comments on bipolar disorder, guys, not mine. <laughs> this is just coming from the book written in 2015. He said that Kay's promiscuity, her lack of judgment, and her lack of restraint were symptomatic of the disorder. So that was what a forensic psychiatrist thought about this whole situation. And speaking of Kay, we have to talk about whether or not she was at all complicit in her parents' murder. So there's several circumstantial factors that are kind of compelling. She faked a broken arm and got her parents to come home only for them to get murdered by her lovers three days later. Her alibi was the babysitter, which calls into question, was she setting up an alibi altogether? I mean, that's a perfect alibi. I called a babysitter. This person was at my house for three hours, saw me just sitting around while I was waiting for a call. Turns out, my phone call didn't come through and I had to just let the babysitter go. But that's a perfect alibi for the exact time that the Hoyts were getting kidnapped. So that's interesting. Also, if she was evasive or wouldn't say who she was planning to meet up with, maybe it's because there was no one. It was just setting up an alibi. I mean, alternatively, though, there could have been some truth to what Harold was saying. Maybe she was waiting for a call from Harold to go over to the Noakes' house to talk to her parents and Harold and Nina. This seems a little unlikely, though, because she had not reportedly talked to them for at least two months at that point. She had not seen them since, I think, July of 1973, and this is late September, and they don't have any phone records. They have no proof or anyone seeing them together that they had any communication. So it does seem maybe a little out of character or or out of evidence that she would be waiting for Harold to call. It's probably more likely that maybe it was a married man lover who 
was trying to get away from his wife and was like, I'll call you if I can get away. And then he never did. And so she didn't want to reveal who he was to blow up his life because it would be part of public record. So there's a whole lot going on with this phone call, but we don't know whether or not this made her at all complicit in what was going on between those factors. They could have just been coincidences. We don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I'm too uncomfortable to go one way or the other. (laughs) There was no benefit. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have like a huge life insurance policy. They had nothing. There was no benefit to her losing her parents, who also did considerable babysitting for her. So she'd be like losing childcare. And the only thing I could even conceive of was that she clearly had a temper. And I know that her relationship with her parents was also kind of breaking down the same way it was breaking down with her siblings. She didn't want to be told what to do. I think she was a little put out that her mother had shared some of her private information with Jerry Ann and her brother. Though still, that's not enough to help your lovers kill them. And there's no record of her ever speaking to Ina and Harold ever again. The only thing else that might be a little sketchy was that she basically fled in the middle of the night between the confessions and the sentencing. So there was some speculation that she was worried that Harold and Ina might say something incriminating about her in their sentencing. But she might have also just not wanted her personal sexual life details to come out and she wanted to get her kids out of there finally. So who knows? Who knows? The Hoyt children themselves were torn apart by their divergent beliefs about Kay's complicity in this. Older siblings, Roger and Donna, felt that Kay had brought the murder about and they said if she wasn't directly involved, then indirectly for inviting the Noakeses into her life and our lives. Well, her two younger brothers, who admittedly weren't around as much, thought that Kay was completely innocent and that, if anything, Donna, as the older sister, should have stepped in and steered Kay to healthier relationships, that she had basically emotionally abandoned her. Not her responsibility. It's not. And I don't really know. First of all, Donna didn't realize until after the murders that her sister was sexually involved with this couple. And it sounds like her parents did everything they could to steer her away from the Noakeses, and it did absolutely no good. Yeah, that's Donna's not going to be able to do anything. Yeah. So Kay did flee, like I said, basically in the middle of the night, taking her kids to California, and she severed all ties with her Nebraska family. In California, she married a man named James Allen, and the couple ran a fruit business in Merced. James passed away after a little while, and Kay eventually reconnected with a high school classmate named Vince Wasia, who is a fellow widower, and he also happened to be a former football teammate of her ex-husband, Dwayne's. Crazy. They had been on both on the same, like, state's champion 1960 team that people still talk about. So the couple married, and they now live in Texas. In 2011, they attended a high school reunion. Not a single person asked her about the murders. Kay, according to my research, is still out there and kicking it, probably around 77 years old. Harold and Ina are no longer with us. Harold passed away after a series of illnesses in the Nebraska State Pen at the age of 88 in 2017. He lived half of his life behind bars. Ina followed in 2021, passing away peacefully at the age of 91. Her obituary photo shows a pleasant-looking elderly woman with fluffy white hair, and her obituary does not mention her once involvement in a double homicide. 
does it say anything about her being able to shoot an eye out of a hawk? It does not, although I think that would have been a fun tidbit for the obituary had they decided to include that. In conclusion, oh man, I gotta trot out this old chestnut once more, but guys, remember, two things will not save your marriage, babies, and three ways. Or four ways, or five ways. <laughs> or... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Threesomes, foursomes, and moresomes. Yeah. Also, I feel like we've seen this so many times. This is almost as bad as the spelling errors. But the car seat situation, it's just Yes. You're you're yes. five feet tall, babes. Like they're gonna they're gonna know that someone unique was driving this car and not the normal drivers. It's happened so many times. It's either you or a twelve year old boy. So you should probably fix that seat Move it back. when you get out. Yeah. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one's parents are ever murdered. Seriously. Mm. Okay. Sorry for the downer, guys. Love you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.